Hi there, and welcome to Live Talk with Jake. Whether you're listening to this podcast via Bluetooth in your car, on your laptop at work, or simply working your backside off at the gym, we have the next hour sorted for you. Hosted by ex-AFL player and 2017 Australian Mental Health Prize nominee, Jake Edwards, this podcast is a one-on-one interview series with some of Australia's most inspiring athletes, celebrities and musicians. Jake will take you on a journey through each guest's life as they share everything from adversity, resilience and opening up about mental health. Now, sit back and relax, unless you're on a treadmill, and enjoy the next episode of Live Talk with Jake. Here is your host, Jake Edwards. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the very first episode of Live Talk with Jake. Now, in preparation for this podcast series, I was writing down a list of names of people who I would love to have as guests on this show. And there was one name that kept popping into my head, and that name is former AFL player manager Ricky Nixon who also happened to be my player manager for the last four months of my AFL career. Now, when people hear the name Ricky Nixon, there are a couple of things that come into our mind. It's the obvious toot-toot, Chicken Nixon, but the more controversial would be the schoolgirl incident. Ricky genuinely fell from grace as he was at the pinnacle of his career, having managed AFL legends such as Ablett Senior, Dunstall, Lyon, Carey, and many, many more. Ricky was the Jerry Maguire of the AFL fraternity and to his own admission has made some poor decisions in his life. But today he's fighting back to rebuild his personal brand and perhaps even one day make his mark back into the AFL management space once again. Now I sat down with Ricky at his apartment in Port Melbourne and I've no doubt that you will all enjoy episode one of Life Talk with Jake. As it is now time to hear from the man himself and learn his life journey from growing up in Bendigo, playing VFL, AFL football, which I think at times is often forgotten, and also creating the now famous Club 10, which included those previous legends of the AFL, VFL game, and what really happened during those dark years. Thank you all again for listening, and here it is, my sit-down talk with Ricky Nixon. Enjoy. Ricky Nixon, thank you very Hi much, there, mate, Jake. for taking the time. Thanks for the introduction. And, no, uh, you're so welcome. You bring back a few memories there. I've just uh, left the Carlton Football Club where I met with AFL Victoria, have their offices there, and uh, reminded me of the day I drove down from Bendigo when I was 18 in my EH station wagon, <laughs> full of all my clothes, my possessions and everything, and I met David Park and the coach up at the social club for lunch. So I went back down to my car and couldn't believe everything had been stolen out of it. David came down and he said, but did you lock your car? And I said, do you have to lock your car in Melbourne? Because <laughs> in Bendigo, in those days, you didn't have to lock your car. No one stole anything from it. Things have changed a bit. Well, that, yeah, certainly has. And obviously, Carlton Football Club got a rich history. And that's yep. where you obviously, you know, was, uh, was drafted to. But taking it back to, you know, growing up, man, the point of this podcast is to really wind things back for, for yourself and let the listeners know a little bit what it was it like growing up in Bendigo, playing football at Golden Square, and I guess the role that football played in your life at, a, at an early age. Yeah, look, I'm a big believer that, you know, in your young years, it, it, it's what makes you the person you are as you grow up. And, you know, I was lucky to grow up in Bendigo, great parents, great family. You know, just life was just, every day was just fun. I grew up with a kid called Greg Williams who was a reasonable footballer, <laughs> went on to win a couple of Brownlow medals. So we spent our whole day wagging school and going down the footy oval, kicking the footy. It's great days back in those days. 
And uh, Bendigo, mate, for you, you know, is this a place where you still get back to a little bit today? Have you still got family in that? Yeah, still got family back there. Get back there more around Christmas sort of thing. But um, family's a bit scattered around Australia. Got one brother up in northern Queensland, a couple in Melbourne sort of thing. And uh, my dad, my mother passed away from cancer, which is one of the reasons that the foundation I created. But, um, you know, uh, it's... uh, but, you know, Bendigo, one of the great stories from Bendigo was when I was 15 and um, Greg and I, were, Greg Williams and I were playing footy. A guy called Tony Southcote was absolutely the best footballer I've ever seen in country Victoria. They played a few games at Carlton but didn't want to come to Melbourne to live. He said, I'm going to make you two kids uh, play VFL, AFL football. I said, how are we going to do that? I'm going to make you the two fittest kids in Australia. So he took us out to this hill, One Tree Hill, which was four oh, yeah, kilometres to the top. Yeah. yeah, and he said, right, off you go. And I was a champion little athlete and just ran straight to the top. Took Greg a month to get to the top. <laughs> and after 28 days or whatever it took him, I said, he's laying on the ground spewing his guts up. And I said, Greg, I said, well done, mate. And he stood up and he goes, why do you always run to the top of the hill, Rick? And I said, uh, that's where Tony taught us to run to. And he said, but you're better than that. The next night I ran up the hill nine kilometres around the bush tracks back to my parents' house and did it every day for 18 months till I played AFL football. Well, there you go. So that yeah. was probably your first introduction. Yeah, and it's like uh, to this day, and we'll come to it probably later on, when I was down and out, I had to find another one tree hill to climb. Yeah. And I luckily did, you know. And, and I always say to people when they're, when they're perhaps got an addiction and they're in a bit of trouble, I go back to what made you great. When you were younger, everyone's got talent. Everybody's got talent. You just got to refine it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, mentioned earlier, uh, you were drafted the Carlton Football Club. Can you explain how that how that worked for you? I know back well, in in your days, it was, it was probably still zoning. Uh, zoning, yeah. 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 Jake, you're on the money today, mate. No, I've got to sort of. Mate. Well, growing up in a football up early, family, yeah. you uh, yeah. you hear a lot about the zoning. No, it was zoning back then. Carlton, Carlton was very famous for its, you know what they got out of Bendigo. A lot of their Premiership players. When I went to Carlton in 1980. Uh, 1979, sorry, they, they won three premierships in four years. And I was just saying when I was there this morning, how exciting time it was for an 18-year-old kid to be at a footy club that wins three premierships oh. in four years. It was just, it was like, yeah. do we ever lose a game? When I played junior football, I never lost a game of football. No. Went to Carlton, won three premierships in four years. Like, <laughs> what's this losing crap? <laughs> pretty easy stuff. Then it? I went to St Kilda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it all went really bad. Yeah, I went downhill from there. Yeah. Um, can, can you tell me your first kind of, I know you mentioned earlier we met Dennis, uh, David Parker when you got to, to the football club. Can you, is there another highlight for you in your first early stages at the Carlton Football Club? Perhaps a player, that uh, left a really strong uh, imprint on, you, on yourself? I think one of the things that I was thinking about the other day, I was over in Carlton near Ligon Street, and I'll never forget the first day I turned up at the club, one of the players, I think it was Mark McClure at the time or someone like that, pretty significant, said, you're coming to lunch, we have lunch at Danini's Cafe every Friday, mm-hmm. and we all go, and I was hearing these same stories about Richmond after they won the premiership, that you know they would all meet at this cheeky monkey cafe in Richmond yeah. every week and they'd get to know each other. What we didn't know back in those days is by having these lunches and social outings together, you got a real affinity with your teammate and you got to learn about him and his life and his family. And then when you went out and played, you played for him. You yeah. didn't play for yourself. Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems with today's lifestyle. And so it's all about me, 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 me. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, given you, obviously we're probably moving forward a bit quick yeah. here, but given you brought it up, do you think that's something that's missing in today's? Oh, look, I've got no doubt that, that social media has created this yeah. problem in the world, which is all about me, 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 me. Mm. Um, you know, no, no, no disrespect for women that are listening and everything else, but, you know, posting pictures of, about selfies all the time about yourself is just to get attention. And don't get me wrong, blokes, us blokes, post funny stuff or comments on mm. footy just to get attention. Yeah. Um, we all love it. So, you know, it's also causing a lot of problems, you know, at schools with bullying and things like that. What's the answer? 
I think we need to, over the next few years, we'll learn to manage it better, I reckon. I know myself with haters and having a new girlfriend, you know, I, we sat down before we made it public and discussed how we're going to handle haters, yeah. and we agreed we're not going to even respond to them. We're just going to block them yeah. and move on. Now, Ricky, when you <coughs> spent your time at Carlton, you only managed to play, I think, four senior games. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Um, was that was that due to missed opportunity? Yeah, injury? look, I, um, yeah, it's no excuses. Uh, I mean, I think I had the – if I played now – in 2017, I'd probably be a star, number one draft pick, because I was a champion athlete. And you and I discussed this before we went to air. It's now an athletic event. Yeah. And I had massive endurance and leg speed. And, and when I played off half-back in the mid-'80s, I was probably playing my best footy there. But if I played now, I reckon you know I'd, I'd have the athleticism to beat the... The young Hendersons and the back of Hoolies and all that because I'm six foot two and could catch it overhead big time. But back in the 80s, I played my first game at 69 kilos. And luckily I played on Robbie Flower that day. But, um, <laughs> yeah, he wasn't a bad player. Yeah, he wasn't a bad player. As I said, I thought I did pretty well. I kept him to 37 possessions. <laughs> no, I got day. from memory, I broke about even. But, um, yeah, it's like the games, I, was, I missed 227 games from uh, injury, injury yeah, well. at, because I was 69 kilos playing against 110 kilo blokes in those days, you know, and it was all about one-on-one contests back in those days. Yep. Now it's more about the run and carry and that sort of thing. But, yep. you know, you can't, um, I'll put it this way, AFL football, I mightn't have been successful games-wise, but it made me as a businessman and it got me into player management and the rest followed. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll touch on that actual mindset and what it sets, I guess, business people up <laughs> um, post-footy as well a bit later on, but... Uh, was given the opportunity at Carlton, is that what probably saw you to get to St Kilda at that time? Yeah, look, uh, it was more a lack of opportunity in that uh, four years that I was there. I played, um, I think, four games or wherever it was. I, was. I was emergency 13 times in the premiership year. Yep. And back in those days, keep in mind, there was only 20 players, not 22. Mm. So I go, well, if it'd been 22, I might, might have played in a couple of premiers. So I asked to um, be cleared. Um, ironically, uh, Essendon wanted me and I was going to sign with Essendon, but Carlton wouldn't clear me to Essendon because they were their major competitor. So they cleared me to St Kilda because they were on the bottom of the ladder and I couldn't cause any damage down there. Ironically, about six of my teammates ended up down there. Peter McConville, Alex Marcuse, Spiro Corkamilis, Wow Jones and Ken Sheldon became the coach down there. Yeah. So um, one thing I learnt from Carlton, though, was success breeds success. And I was lucky to be there at a time when, you know, the John Elliott's of this world were, the, you know, the kings of Australian business. Yeah. And you know what they did, like even even when I went into player management, and I, I'd finished at um, Securda and Hawthorne, John Elliott still gave me advice and helped me get into player management. Yeah, there you so go. So it's just amazing that the networks. I say to players who shit can clubs who sack them or delist them, hey, they've given you the greatest opportunity. It's not just about playing footy; it's about the networks that you build up and the people that you meet. Yeah, absolutely. Now your time at St Kilda, mate, was. A- Far more successful on the field. You played 51 yep. uh, senior games there, which out of the three was your, your most successful game-wise. And what was it about St Kilda, I guess, that probably obviously the timing of it and the opportunity was there, but did you enjoy your time more underneath the St Yeah, look, club? I think, um, ironically, as a kid, I barracked for St Kilda, even coming from a Carlton zone, so it's yeah. always great to play at the club you barracked for. But, you know, being at a club, too, that when I got there, were bottom of the ladder, to finish and be my last game of final that... Some people say it was the greatest final of all time against Geelong out at Waverley Park. Mm. Um, Plugger kicked 10 goals that day, and I think Billy Brown was kicked nine. <laughs> and it was just an unbelievable game. We lost by a goal in the end. I, I believe we could have won the premiership that year, most people do, if we'd won that first final. But it was back in when it was the old final five system. And if you lost your first final and you went out, you didn't get a second chance. And... Um, yeah, unfortunately, we kicked a few points uh, at times in the games, which we should have nailed as goals. 
just doing some research on you, Rick, before sitting down with you, um, I came across a quite prominent during that era, probably the post then, obviously, you St Kilda um, days, that you had a contractual dispute uh, with St Kilda, uh, <laughs> which perhaps might have pushed you out the door and you're on your own accord, or was it uh, internal? In fact, I'll ask you a question, Jake, you won't know the answer to, but who was Hawthorne's number one pick in the draft, pre-season draft in 1991? The pre-season draft back in those days used to happen in February. So what happened was, at, I'd come to the point where I was um, keen to look at this player management business, I suppose, and uh, you know, back in those days, you, I, you, I was probably earning, I don't know, it might have been 50 grand from football if I was lucky, I'd say, 30 grand from teaching, so you earn about 80 grand for the year. Um, and it was at the stage where, look, you know, is, is it really financially better for me to go into business not as a school teacher, but go into a business and make a hundred grand and play AFL football. Mm. It's actually more. I can make more money now. It's not the same now for young kids who get drafted. No. I mean, no young kid at eighteen is going to earn a hundred and ten grand at eighteen to start his own concreting business or something, is he? So, it was about opportunity, uh, and so I decided to leave. But Hawthorne had already done a deal with me to be the first, so I said I'd retire. Yep. And much to St Kilda's disbelief, <laughs> I bobbed up in February at Hawthorne, which once again, I swear the people that my success in business or, or in player management is all because I played at three great clubs and three clubs gave me um, access to 150 players yeah. to go into player management. If I played at one club, I would have only had access to 50. Yeah, that's right. And now looking at these three clubs, I mean, you look at the, the way the structure of AFL yeah. and VFL has been over history. You know, Carlton, St Kilda, Hawthorne, a lot during your playing days, Ricky, you would have played with some tremendous footballers. Oh, yeah, um, look. And I, mean, I, I can only imagine some of those names, mate, that you could probably roll off now. Yeah. They just blew you away week in, week out. Well, look, the players like, you know, if I go quickly through the three clubs, you know, at the, at the likes of um, uh, Carlton, you had Wayne Johnson, Southby and Keogh and Ashman and the list goes on and on, mm. McClure, you know, Kernan. I oh, sorry, Kernan came just after I left. Even Greg Williams, you know, my mate, you know, he didn't play there, but he was he trained there with me. Four, four times they gave him a flick. Yet they signed, mm. I kicked four goals on Bruce Dool in the first practice game, yeah. and that's why they signed me and not Greg. And they made the greatest mistake of their life, didn't they? There you go. <laughs> and they might have won eight premierships yeah, in a row. They signed up Greg. Uh, security had Plugger, um, Danny yeah. Frawley, uh, Winmar. People underestimate what a player Winmar was. Unbelievable. Yeah. Even in the early days, Greg Burns was a terrific footballer. Um, and then went to Hawthorne, was lucky enough to at the, go in at the end of an era. You know, I think I played four or six games there, and yet up on the wall there is the record-breaking 12 finals in a row, and I'm on the wing because I played half a game of good football. <laughs> but you got names up there like Tuck and Langford and Breton and you know, the list goes, the list Dunstall, Dipper. Hudson, Dipper. You know, the list goes on. Absolute superstars of the game. So when you look back on your career, mate, in a quick snap snapshot, uh, how would you summarise your, your time? Uh, look, very enjoyable. You know, look, you can always whinge about your injuries or stuff like that. That's life. I mean, not too many people get to play in two finals in front of, you know, hundreds of thousand people sort of thing. Um, great experience. I'm actually the second longest serving player for the second least amount of games. So the only person who beat me, Luco Sullivan played 10 years for 62 games. I played 11 years for 63 games. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great achievement. It really is. I mean, obviously, I, I think myself. it says you must be offering something to cl- for clubs to keep you for eleven years, yep. and only average, you know, seven games a year. Yep. You must be offering something back. And yep. if you ask all the boys at the club, who was first bloke to organise a footy trip, and who was first bloke to have everything done? So that was going to lead me into my next question, <laughs> uh, Ricky. Obviously, during the eighties and early nineties, it was a different era to what we are in today. Yeah. 
Have you got a couple of stories, maybe just one story that you could probably share uh, without obviously maybe naming names, but also just give people an insight as to what it was like from the social aspect to you know the late 80s and early 90s. For social yourself. aspect, in fact, going to Carlton remind me of in those days, you, you would go out Saturday night, you'd go out till Sunday morning, yeah. and they used to have pleasant Sunday afternoons at Carlton where you meet the supporters, grab a beer with them and that, and you think, God, that just doesn't happen today. No. You know, oh, you can't have two beers because that'll affect your endurance, you know, in six days' time when we travel to Perth. And all the fun's really gone out of it. I mean, back in those days, super competitive and you had to win premierships, but all the fun uh, went out of it. Um, some of the stories, um, I mean, you know, the social stories of, you know, one, one time um, uh, Ian Muller, a young guy from Carlton, he moved to St Kilda and he had a knee reconstruction. I'll never forget, we went down to Sandringham Footy Club on a Sunday for a drink and Rod Owen, th- and we were walking out through his crutches up in the power lines and blacked out all of Sandringham. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we hastily got in the taxi and disappeared <laughs> off the Dandenong somewhere for the night. Oh, that's classic. There's yeah. always, you know, a great story. I obviously grew up in a family full of uh, fam- footballers and, uh, you know, my old man and my grandfather used yeah. to tell me stories. Even Shane today yeah. uh, shares a few stories. And it's always a great question to ask people who have been through the 80s and 90s and what mm. it was like. Now, your career ended at Hawthorne. Yep. You want to give us a quick snapshot as to why? Yeah, well, look, I, 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 I was basically, uh, I decided to go into player management. And I asked Hawthorne, John Hook at the time, um, who was a footy manager, um, you know, I mean, you're going to keep me on or not? And he goes, well, I'll check with the coach. And he came back and said, yeah, we want to keep you for one more year. But I made the decision to quit. Um, and it was the best decision I made, to be honest. I probably would have struggled to get a game there the following year. So all I would have been getting is the money. And I lived probably 800 metres from the ground. In those days, we trained at Glenfrey Oval, played at Waverley. So it wasn't a hard decision in the end. I actually, I was teaching at Kerry Grammar. This is the things that football gave me. Carlton Football Club got me a job at Kerry Grammar when I was only a primary school qualified teacher. Yeah. I was teaching phys ed at Kerry Grammar. It's one of the most prestigious co-ed prim- uh, private schools in Australia. Yeah. And, um, you know, to get that opportunity, I wouldn't, here's a kid from Bendigo whose mum and dad owned a milk bar. <laughs> I wouldn't have got that opportunity, you know, so that you're forever grateful for what footy gives you. So when did Flying Star, now arguably Flying Star is the most publicly well-known, successful sporting agency in Australia. Yeah. When did that really become into fruition for you and when did the idea get created behind the, the whole concept of the club, club tent? Well, I wanted to go, I was working with a girl, Michelle Baumgarten, who was an Olympic athlete, and she used to come to work at Kerry Grammar every day and go, oh, you know, I've been offered a new Mercedes, and then a week later I'd go, where's the new Mercedes? Oh, this bloke promised it to me, and I said, see, it can't be that hard to have a good manager. And then I said, why don't we go into management? So, I mean, people don't know this, is that she agreed to go into management, we were 50-50. After a year, she said, I don't reckon this is going to work. I said, fine, I'll take over your 50%. And then about a year... She'd be spewing. Yeah, she'd be spewing. Because <laughs> uh, at that time, also, mobile phones didn't exist. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, you couldn't conduct business like you do today. But as we got... I think mobile phones started to come in around about 94, 95, and they were like big bricks. Yep. And I can remember at, at uh, Carey Grammar, because uh, the kids... I was at, They used to... Their phys ed complex was in Boleyn, but the school was in Kew. And so the kids get bust out, and they'd, so there'd be this 45-minute gap between lessons. So I used just to lie on the high jump bag on this big mobile phone brick, ringing players and <laughs> organising the player management business while I was teaching phys ed. Yeah, so and, and as I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, the Club 10 concept, yeah, you, know, you obviously looked after some incredible names during your time as, a, as an agent. You know, roll off a couple of them as I did earlier, Gary Ablett Sr., Wayne Carey, Dunstall, Lockett, Lyon, these are players that, 
are just absolute legends. In yeah, the, they are. I mean, I often say to people, run off 10 players. Over here, you've got, you know, Kerry, Dunstall, Ablett, all those guys, right? Run off 10 players in today's game that you could actually say are as good as them. You wouldn't find them. No, you wouldn't. I mean, Dustin Martin, who's had a fantastic year and he's a personal friend and a great kid, um, and no one's going to ever have a year that he's had. Mm. He still needs to do it for a period of time, and that's a challenge for Dustin, and I hope he does become the greatest player in the game. Is um, I'll never forget Wayne Carey coming into my office, and I said challenged him about what when do you think you'll be, and this is probably when he was about 24, I reckon, so he's already the best player in the game, and he's dominating. And I said, um, when do you think you can, or do you think you can be the greatest player of all time? He said, when I play as well and as long as Jason Dunstall has and done it for over a decade, then I reckon I've made it. And I thought it was a good point. Mm. Too many people get carried away with one good season or a spate of five or six games. It's longevity over a period of time of continually producing that consistent superstar performance. What was the biggest challenge, Ricky, for you managing? I mean, you've got terrific players there, but you've got some yeah. egos involved in there oh, as well. Yeah. Like when, imagine... when I signed Wayne Carey, this all happened because... I was coming to, uh, I think from, it was my last year at sort of Hawthorne and I was starting to part-time do things a bit and uh, my accountant was actually doing contracts because it was a conflict of interest. I was still playing but I was trying to organise these marketing things and this lady from Sydney rang me and said, can you, I do this men of all seasons calendar on the NRL players. It's been a huge hit. Can you organise the AFL players? So I said, yeah. So I organised um, uh, Dermot Brenton to be the, and he was the biggest superstar in the game at the time and I'll never forget this. And I said, look, Dermot, um, we're going to do this calendar and all the other players are getting 1500 bucks, which back in those days was probably 15 grand. And I said, mate, um, how much is it going to cost me? He goes, look, you're my mate, I play for you, you just pay me what you think I'm worth. I said, fair enough. So we went, got to train the next week, and he goes, where's my money, chicken? I said, ah, I gotta get it, I'll get it to you next week, mate, I'll get it to you next week. And all the boys are laughing, he goes to train, where's my bloody money, chicken? <laughs> so as we're doing the stretches up against the fence, I walked over and handed him those days a $2 note. I go, there you go, full and final settlement. He goes, what? I said, you, you said pay me what you thought I was worth. <laughs> <laughs> but also the other big thing about that calendar was, and that's what day I met Wayne Carey, Greg Miller, the CEO of North Melbourne, said, I reckon you've got to get this kid, Wayne Carey. And I'll never forget, I met his brother, who was a river bloke. He was managing Wayne. Mm. And he said, I'm telling you, he'll be the greatest player of all time. I said, listen, as long as my ass points to the footpath, he won't be the greatest player of all time. Really? <laughs> and Doc, Duck always reminds me about that. Oh, he's uh, obviously a proved everyone role, mate, by the end of the days in terms of, yeah. he said earlier, if you could match it with Dunstall, by the end of his career, I think yep. people would say he's probably arguably the best player he's ever played. Yeah, exactly. Is there is there one player that sticks out for you over the journey, being, being a, um, a manager or an agent, that someone who really solidifies uh, a role model in the eyes of um, the public, but also yourself? Someone you respected through that the whole duration of your. I think the two players who stand out to me. People ask me every week when I'm out speaking. You know, mm. who's the best player and who didn't you like and all that. I mean, you're not going to really. I don't want to be bagging anyone. I've always had the no. view that um some players, everyone's different. Some some players I managed, I thought were pretty arrogant and self centered. But guess what? That's just the way their genes made up. It's not, you can't you know fight the fact that they're great players. Um, but the two players who stood out as far as um were probably Doug Hawkins and Matthew Richardson. Just fantastic people, always supported each other. Us, I supported them, they supported me through tough times. Always tell it as it is. You know, I think everyone sees that in Matthew Richardson anyway. Mm. Just a ripper person that he is. I mean, I even spoke to him last week about a, look, a young kid in Tassie who's struggling a bit. Could you do a quick video for me? Just going, it's rich. I came back to me in 30 seconds. Yeah. You know, and I think of other players who play the game today. You'd be lucky if you got something back in three weeks time because oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. But his priority, Richo, is other people, not the other way around. Yeah. 
What I would love you to try and do, Rick, at the moment right now is answer this question the best way you can and help people understand what it's like for a player agent to be at the deadline of um, trade week when you've got players who are looking to move yep. on and you know it's really do or die for a lot of these yep. players based on their career. What's it like as an agent who's responsible for the livelihood of players? And when we say livelihood, we don't just mean football, we mean their lives, family, yep. houses, you know, cars, yep. all those type of things they've got. What's it like, mate, um, the pressure you ha- you've had to experience at times during that during that period. Oh, look, I remember a trade period, which with the trading had just sort of started in the early 90s or whenever. Oh, actually, sorry, this would have been probably, uh, when was it? It was, when, no, it was around 2000 when Essen won a premiership and they were struggling to sign Hurd and um, other players and they had to let a few players go. And the dre- deadline was coming at 5-2 to two, and they had to get two players out. One of them was mine. He was overseas on holidays and I couldn't contact him. And... Um, and I could hear a voice in the background, tell Nixon if he doesn't buddy do it, he'll be playing in the reserves all year. I'm like, fuck you. So I rang up the other club and said, yep, he's coming, which was Richmond. Uh, Chris Heff, uh, Chris Heffernell, who, uh, no, who was it? I was trying to think. Anyway, come back to me in a minute. And I just said, look, you're offering 200, it's 400. And they've gone done. I've gone, oh, okay. So I rang up and said, mate, I just got you 400 grand. You're only on 120. He goes, oh, you're the best. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now, obviously, that week, that well, now it's a couple of weeks, but that week back when you were obviously managing, mate, would have been a stressful period for for everyone involved. But I, I'd assume there would have been a lot of conversations happening, you know, pre uh, that. Yeah, I think um, what I explained it's like when the Wayne Carey stuff happened, people say, you know, what what was going through your head, Mister? I go, at the time you're in the moment, you you're not really. Well, you know, you don't walk out to the lawn and pick up the Herald Sun and go, wow, oh my God, look what's happened. It's sort of like I obviously knew it was happening and I was in, in it, you know, so. Well, also, people probably underestimate the fact that you manage not only these players as footballers, but their personal lives a lot yeah, of times. Yeah, I mean, well. it was more, you, you, people say, oh, well, you know, this player stuffed up and that player stuffed up. And why? you go, look, you know, I see him once a month. Mm-hmm. Like, Dennis Pagan, I'd argue, saw Wayne Carey every day for seven days a week. Why isn't he responsible? I mean, at the end of the day, I just take it we all make mistakes. I mean, my wife's famous saying, it's not public, but it will be now, is she just said, she never once asked me what I did, never asked me to apologise, just said, Ricky, we all make mistakes. It's what you do about it from this day forward will determine your two sons' future. And she's right. And it's a... It's a great segue, mate, into moving forward. Um, obviously, during your time, it's very well publicly documented, you know, that you went through some controversy, um, you know, back in the day. And obviously, the, probably the biggest public one is the, the schoolgirl incident. What happened? Well, what happened simply this is that's what the media focus on. But a year before that, my number one client died in his sleep. And that was a guy called Clinton Gripus. People will say, well, how's he your number one client? Now, he, I don't know if you know who he was, Jack, but he was an up-and-coming superstar in the media. He's going to be the next um, whoever, Eddie McGuire, etc. When I found him, he was earning 30 grand, doing call and basketball in the ABC. I said, mate, I'll get you 300 grand within a year. Within a year, he was earning a million dollars. So he was paying me, I think, around about 70 grand of that in management fees, which he was happy to do. Yeah. Wayne Carey was only paying me 50. So when I say number one client, I'm talking about management fees. Um, he actually came to see me in my office two weeks before Christmas. Half his ear was hanging off. He had a cut across his cheek. And I'm like, well, mate, what happened? He goes, oh, someone broke into my apartment and bashed me last night. I said, mate, you live on the 27th floor of a building in City, City Road in the city. There's security down the bottom. That couldn't have happened. We went back to his house, and all we could work out is he must have sleepwalked that night and tripped on the balcony uh, railing and hit his head on the, the what have you called, yeah, the balcony, because yeah, yeah. there was blood on it. And he said, it's funny you should say that, but I, uh, three nights ago, they found me out near the lift, sound asleep. I said, mate, that's not right. You've got to go and see the doctor. Mm. I rang him two days before Christmas, and I said, how'd you go to the doctor? And he said, mate, the doctor said there's nothing wrong with me. 
I said, oh, fair enough, hung up and thought, he didn't even go to the doctor. Four days later, I was lying on the beach down at Point Lonzo with my wife, and my phone rang, it was Graham Mott from 3AW, where Clinton worked. And I turned to Jude and I said, uh, Clinton's dead. She said, what? I said, Clinton's dead. Graham, Clinton's dead. He goes, how do you know that? I said, oh, no, I've just had this awful feeling. And that's when my decline started. It's not an excuse, it's just an explanation, but I struggled big time with that, that it was my fault, that I, you know, when I made my success out of being systematic procedure, tick every box, do it the, the right way, and he was my number one client. I didn't even check if he went to the doctor. Now, you could say, okay, but it was, the, the coroner actually told me that 2,000 men in Australia under 30 die each year, your heart just stops. There's no reason, it just stops. And that's what they think happened with him, basically. So that started uh, alcohol. That started uh, an addiction to cocaine. You know, I don't beat around the bush like some media people do and say, you know, they've got an alcohol problem and they've really got a drug problem. I mean, get out of it and get on with it, you know. Yeah. Own, your, own your mistakes and get on with it. St Kilda's schoolgirl and all this is a total crap. She wasn't even a schoolgirl, but it's a good story at mm. the time. Mm. And what happened is, you know, everyone's an expert on what happened, but only two people were there. So... My wife doesn't want to hear about it anymore. My kids don't, so I don't harp on it. But where I went to from there was, um, you know, there was an incident at my house with a former girlfriend, front page of the newspaper the next day, Peter Moore, um, former Collingwood champion. Um, look, I had three, you'll say, how do you remember the exact number? I do because it was a significant day. 347 messages or missed calls that day. People ringing me. I didn't answer any of them. And I saw Peter's name came up and I thought I answered it. And to this day, the only reason I can think of when I talk publicly on the weekend that you answer it is when it's someone above you, mm. you probably answer it. So when your mate says, are you drinking too much? Are you doing too much drugs? You say no, don't you? Mm. But when it's someone above you, you listen. So Peter said, Rick, I don't even want to know what happened last night. All I know is your two sons don't deserve this and you're going to the doctor at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And that's when I got out of denial and went, I'm going. And at the doctor the next day, and this is a great story for those who are listening, uh, he said, I want to send you to Corumban Clinic in Queensland. It's going to cost 30 grand. You got 30 grand. I went, I've just lost $7 million. I haven't got 30 grand. And he goes, have you got private health insurance? I went, oh, God, I've been paying it for 26 years. I just stopped paying it six months ago. And he goes, well, mate, if you don't go to Corumban Clinic, which is in on the Gold Coast for addiction and mental health, you're going to die. So, okay, so I left there and I rang Jude, my ex-wife, and said, um, Jude, this is what they want me to do. He says, she said, it's great, you've got to go. And I said, I haven't got 30 grand of private health insurance. She said, you have. I said, I haven't. She said, you have. I've been paying you private health insurance because I knew this day was coming. I went, wow. Drove around to her house. And uh, my son, Mitch, who was 15 at the time, was living with her. Um, my other son was in, on the Gold Coast at uni, so missed a lot of it. But Mitch went through a lot of suffering. I mean, I walked in, I said, Jude, is there anything I can do for you? And she said, yep. How long are you going for? I said, four weeks. She said, if you come back in two, I'll stab you. Now, this is an amazing woman. Talk yeah. about Wayne Carey being the greatest footballer of all time. She's the greatest person I know. She just always checks on my health, everything else. I turned to Mitch, and how would you feel if you got this? I got an email from Mitch about a month before that saying, I've lost my footy coach, I've lost my dad, my heart is broken. Mm. And I went, oh, Jesus. So I turned to Mitch and I said, is there anything I can do for you, Mitch? And he didn't answer and he had his head down. He hadn't spoken for about a year, basically. And I said, Mitch, is there anything I can do for you? And Jude said, come on, Rick, just get going, just get going. I said, no, please, Mitch, and this will haunt me till the day I die. He looked up and he said, yep, I just want my dad back. All I want is my dad back. I went, wow. And that's the most powerful message that I can give to anyone listening to this, that it's not about you. It's about everybody else around you. Yeah. So, I mean, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And the whole point of this podcast is when I selected yourself, 
you and I had a personal relationship during my football career in, uh, days, um, but you know, I've watched you over many years now, and I thought sitting down with you, giving the opportunity to be my first guest on this on this show, give the chance for you to, to share your own personal insight and your own truth of yep. the story. And it's very easy for the public to sit back and make assumptions based on what they read in papers oh, and course. so forth and so on. But yeah, we, we do forget at times the the families that are behind mm. these these examples. And from what you've shared, mate, your your ex wife now yeah. is a, a remarkable nice. woman. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, thank thank God that she obviously yep. has uh, been incredibly supportive over over the years. And it's funny though. Yesterday there was a video appeared. And I saw it this morning. Someone showed it to me. So I saw it again this morning about a journalist who got confronted outside a court by a bloke saying, "You are the scum of the earth, you journalists these days," and everything else. Yep. And I think about the damage that they did to my family. Some would argue that it's your fault you went to that hotel room. I don't disagree with that at all. But there's no need to lie. Your job is to report the news, not to lie about it. And you mentioned earlier, which I think you know, you and I both have taken a lot of responsibility for our lives. And not at any stage do we deny any of these um, actions of our own behalf. Yeah. But we certainly have the opinion that you know, we, we, we're trying to get our lives back yeah. on track and yeah. we believe we deserve second chances along the way is that that's obviously something that you've well, one thing that social media these days has created is people who are miserable and not had a great life and that might not be their fault mm-hmm. they don't want to see you get a second chance they want to see you be as miserable as them mm-hmm. but you know one of the things that did happen to me when i was and I'll, I'll just tell you this last bit about what happened to me when i went to crumman clinic when i walked in i got a phone call from granny peg from bendigo and she was my hero growing up her mum lived to 106 or something, oldest lady in Australia. She lived to her late 90s. Twin sister, one buried for Carlton, one buried for Collingwood. They reckon that was the secret to life, arguing <laughs> about footy teams each day. You're not wrong. Anyway, she said to me, Rick, she goes, those, those people up there can't fix you. There's only one person who can fix you. I said, who's that? She goes, you. She goes, go in the mirror, go in the bathroom every morning, look in the mirror and smile. I said, how's that going to help me? She said, I'll tell you how, because it creates excitement genes in your head. You used to be the happiest guy in Australia. Now you're the most unhappiest. Start smiling again. I said, okay. She said, I want you to go for a walk every morning and I want you to listen on your phone to that cold stuff. I've gone, cold stuff? What cold stuff? She goes, you know that cold stuff? I said, cold chisel. She goes, yeah, listen to them. <laughs> I started laughing. I said, she said, look at photos of your kids. I said, okay. And this is a great lesson for people who are down and out. And then people who tell me they've got depression that I tell them this story. You said one other thing, Rick, don't let the bastards beat you. Now, I found out later on that that saying is from her great-great-grandfather who came out from Ireland when he was 14 on a boat, stole away, came to Australia, swam ashore in Adelaide, probably explains my fight in life, I suppose, mm. um, became a um, transported tobacco between Adelaide and Melbourne and was held up by six bull changes with guns. He beat them all off and said, never let the bastards beat you. And that's been handed down over the years. Yeah. So what she meant that day was, don't let the bastards in your head beat you. And yeah. um, anyway, this is the last part of what I want to explain to people. I went for a walk along Corumbra Beach that morning at 6 o'clock. I'm listening to cold chisel. I'm looking at photos. My kids came around the corner, and there was this hill. And this girl was running along the footpath. I said, how far is it up that hill? She goes, oh, it's about 4K. I went, that's One Tree Hill from Bendigo yeah. when I was 15. Made me an AFL player. I'm down and out. That hill will make me again. Took me 27 days to get up the hill or something. Nearly died. And, um, <laughs> but that's what changed everything in my mind is yeah. also learning to, um, and I'm sure you've been through it, Jake. If you actually understand yourself, you'll understand why you have this addictive nature. Yeah. If you're an ideas person, adrenaline junkie. I mean, I'm sure me relating some of this stuff to you, you're thinking through your own head about your own life. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mentioned, uh, again, uh, Rick, speaking before we come on air about my belief is is that 
sporting athletes uh, going through the system. And what we're taught is, you know, a very much a, almost like a robotic attitude to life where it's commitment, dedication, hard work. And you've learned all these things, you know, growing up in Bendigo through your family and coming to the football system and post that getting into your, into your, um, your flying start business. Do you think everything you've gone through has really set you up and galvanized you to the man you are today to be able to handle, you mentioned before, the online, yep. you know, bullies and all those type yep. of things? And do you think all that experience you've gone through early on, mate, has really held you in the best possible stead? Oh, look, no doubt. Even that saying from don't let the bastards beat you, that's mm. just a reflection on haters too. Yeah. Don't let them bring you down to where they want, want you to be. Like, you're better than that. You know, that's what my girlfriend and I have discussed at length the last few weeks is we're not going to get dragged down by them. You know, we're very happy and they don't want to see us happy sort of stuff. So it's a good lesson for everyone. You know, I think it, yeah, there's no doubt. Wayne Carey summed it up. It was the best I've heard Wayne speak about a year ago at Wayne Garanta Race Club of all places. He said he felt he's lived four lives. He, all he ever wanted to be was a footballer. All he ever wanted to be was the greatest player who played the game. All he ever wanted to be was happily married and everything else. Then he stuffed it all up, mm. and then he had to fight back. Now he's trying to be the best father that he can, and he's going into his fifth life, and he wants to make sure his fifth life is his happiest. Yep. And I thought, wow, everyone in the audience went completely silent because I could tell they were all thinking the same way. Mm. And I think if we get over this, you've only got one life. It's not true. Like, you know, you just go through phases. Yeah. Moving forward, Rick. Uh, mentioned this early on in the in the intro piece that you were actually awarded the Australian Day Sports Medal uh, by the Prime Minister John yeah. Howard, and it was really just an accolade for your um, your involvement with sport. And yeah, I guess the the inroads that you've made through your marketing uh, with the, the Flying Start and so forth. Well, what was that like, and how they even come about? I think sort of too what we do in the new played AFL football and everything is it's only been the last probably last six months, I'm 54, that I've actually reflected on what what I've done. Um, good and bad, I suppose, but, you know, we tend to focus on the bad, you know, frankly, you know, and I guess um, hearing people talk about, you know, Wayne Carey talking about what amazing job he did, the greatest marketing deals that no one does these days and all that sort of thing, you sort of, I guess you go, well, you know, it's great to get that acknowledgement and that, say, the award from a Prime Minister but it doesn't help you tomorrow, really. So you've got to find... The thing I probably left out a bit before is when I came back to... Uh, after, after getting up that hill at Corumban, um, came back and was lying on my back in the hospital. On the TV, they said, what's the hardest thing to do in the world? And this American panel were discussing the hardest thing to do in the world is public speaking. And this guy said, no, it's not. Mm. The hardest thing to do in the world is be a stand-up comedian. And I went, ah, that's me. Now, I got up one for you. The next thing I'm going to do is be a stand-up comedian. And I like, Harold Sun, I'll never forget this, did a double-page spread on I was the unfunniest bloke in the world. Everyone should boycott and protest out. I hadn't even done a show. And then I did three shows that had 400 people at each show. And that led to my Facebook being pretty popular and everything else. And people would say, why did you do all this crazy stuff on Facebook? It was because I got told by the biggest PR expert in Australia, Max Markson, that you cannot go back into sport for five years. Because they won't, he won't accept you back. The public won't accept you back. You've got to do something different. You've got to find a new mountain to climb. So if you're down and out, you've got to find a new mountain to climb. You love a challenge, don't you? Yeah, I do. And you love being you told one you form? can't do something. You've got one I can beat you at no. today, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sharing your story, mate, is certainly uh, an inspiring aspect. But I think, it, once again, it gives a great insight uh, to Ricky Nixon, the man, and, and where sure. you've come from. And, and, and moving forward again, Rick, you know, 54 years of age, here you are living in the beautiful place of Melbourne, Port, Port Melbourne. Yep. What's next, mate? I mean, I, I can roll off these um, things you're involved with at the moment again. You know, how, how well, to become a sports agent yeah. is one of them. Uh, Chicken Goes Bang, which yeah. is 
I'm uh, big with all my mates yeah. and every time they're tagging yeah. uh, people on Facebook and things like that. My footy agent, which I know has been a massive success for local yeah. sporting clubs, trying to recruit um, other footballers and the footy factory and obviously creating the, the charity uh, aspect, um, kicking it for cancer. Like I said before, mate, does your girlfriend, do you guys even talk? Do you have time to hang out with each other? You <laughs> seem pretty busy last mate. night because we are having dinner and I had to beat her finishing dinner. She goes, you have to win at everything? <laughs> no, the biggest thing that I, I focused on at the moment, I've just come from a great meeting with AFL Victoria, is this kick for cancer. Mm. Um, I was inspired by a young kid, Callum Dodson at Chelsea Heights, 22, got a, a, one of the rarest forms of bowel cancer in the world. Um, this kid, when I went and met him, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, they wanted me to host a charity night. And he came up and he just went, chicken, how are you, mate? I went, are you good? And you know when you know someone could potentially die, I suppose? And he goes, we're going to beat this, mate. We're going to beat this. And I got the best news ever yesterday that maybe he got got his latest test back and they're all clear at the moment. He knows he's still got challenges ahead. Yeah. But I wanted to come up with something that um, I know when I've dealt with young people before who are down and out, unless they've got a challenge, they'll stay down and out and they'll stay in bed with the doona over their head. So... um I decided to come in to sing Kick for Cancer, which is basically kicking a football into a wheelie bin 35 metres away. Um, we're going to get as many leagues and clubs involved next year to do it at their club. Yep. And you put in like two bucks, say, and the money goes to cancer. And I'm going to go, say 50% remains at the club and 50% goes into research and stuff like that. Um, with the idea being if you get it in the bin, you go into a regional final and then hopefully um, on grand final day, We'll have 10 people who get one kick for a million dollars, which I reckon would be really outstanding at the halftime at the MCG. Yeah, and if, imagine if someone gets it in and wins a million dollars. And and also, the good thing is you can get the Wayne Carries of this world, you know, having a kick as well, and, and the Dippers or, you know, those characters, Warwick Kappa, yeah. you know, kicking it at halftime as well and taking on the 10 people. Now, one thing that isn't documented, right, because you mentioned before, a lot of people find it easier to hate on and focus on the negative, but you've managed to support this charity with having raised $1.1 million to help raise funds to look into research for cancer. You know, personally, mate, you should be really congratulated for your work in the charitable space. I know, yeah, I know how much of a challenging industry it can be at times, yeah. uh, but certainly the ability to use your own personal brand and your own journey uh, in, a, in a positive way, yeah. um, that should be something that you should be able to look back on, if yeah. not now, but later years and be extremely, extremely proud of. Which one of these other... Things at the moment, yeah. mate, is taking up most of your time. Is it the, uh, I like to the footy agent? Or? Yeah, the footy agent's day-to-day stuff. Yeah. Uh, look, I enjoy it. Uh, look, I am being encouraged to go back into AFL player management. That was going to be my next um, question. Is that is that on the radar? Uh, it wasn't till a couple of weeks ago, and now I suppose you get confidence out of the fact I've got parents ringing me. They're ringing me. Yep. One's a top 20 draft pick this year, and a, one from Queensland and a couple from Perth. So it's like... All right, I'm going to think about this till the end of November. But if I did, it'd only be like 10 players, probably five young kids who I'd get a lot of enjoyment out of managing and five experienced players. One parent made a pretty big impact on me when he said, I want my son managed by the best manager in the game who actually has made a few mistakes. And guess what? He can talk to my son and talk to him about we're going to make mistakes and talk to him about his experiences. I don't want a 22-year-old sports agent managing my 18-year-old son. Thought, yeah, that's, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? Mm, yeah, certainly. Um, so, yeah, the focus will be the kick to cancer thing is probably my priority next year, but I'm also, I've still got in the back of my mind, it nearly came off in September this year, and that was a, a boxing tournament that featured a lot of ex-AFL players and NRL players. That's still a possibility next year, so... Uh, there's a few good... I, I see it as more this year was consolidation. Next year will be some big events. And those yeah. one-off AFL player games, they're, they're just fantastic. I love them. Yeah, they are. Especially I've come from a country 
uh, regional yeah. area and seeing the players get back. Oh, in. yeah. The smaller places we went to, like people wouldn't even know this place, Tantanula, which is in the yeah. bottom of South Australia, right down that bottom part that joins Victoria. Like just the people there and seeing the, the look on their faces. Shuts down, no, the whole town shut down, yeah. and, and they all come and the basin there that had Barry Hall, they had five, six thousand people come to the game. They usually get sixty. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. even the head of AFL Victoria, Steve Reaper, who I just met with, Ripper by like he just he said, "Yeah, look, we think it's great for the community and people." Yeah. And yeah, well, Always it's just one game. You don't want to influence the season too much. No, you don't. But how, how can like, people not look at that and see it's not benefiting you know, oh, everyone involved? Absolutely. You know, the players get to get back to local sport. The clubs themselves yeah. raise money. Yeah. Um, you know, for, and sponsors get on board. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really massive community initiative. Outside of all this, Rick, you've obviously got your own life, mate, away from all your work and things like that. You've got a, you've got a girlfriend yeah. at the moment. And outside of all this, mate, what, what, what else is Ricky Nixon doing? You know, what, what's Ricky Nixon do to create some balance in his, in his life. I think the other thing is just getting some consistency back in your life where I know, I know, and I struggled probably in the last six years is I struggled the first two and the other time I struggled, which is going to be a very big surprise to everyone, was the middle of this year. Things were going well, but I was sitting at home, living in a house on my own, don't watch TV, started drinking again, you know, and you start going, I'm not going down this track again. You know, I just don't want to. And you're fighting it every day. I knew what I needed and that was a good partner. And I think people underestimate sometimes that it's your partner in life. Mm-hmm. And Jude was great to me for 25 years, but I haven't been with her for six years. So I haven't got the luxury of asking Jude how I'm going and everything else. And I've just been very lucky. Melissa, who I'm now with, is just absolutely unbelievable person. Very kind, you know, listens. We, we talk about stuff. We never argue, you know, and having a good partner is very important. Yeah, definitely. Certainly is something that I can certainly relate to, mate. Over the years, when you go through those those yeah. downtimes, people come and go a lot. Well, well you're also going into relationships that, and this isn't a criticism of former girlfriends because I love them all, but yeah. they weren't right for me. And, and, and in all fairness, I wasn't right for them because they weren't getting the real Ricky Nixon. Melissa's actually getting the real Ricky Nixon now. Yeah. Um, a couple of others have got a Ricky Nixon who probably wasn't mentally right. Now, you've got a, a book. Ricky? Yep. Uh, which is called My Side. Yeah. How's that uh, been progressing this year and is there ever <laughs> going to be another one? Well, um, people are encouraging me to write another one. Uh, trouble is, what would the topics be? Would it be, you know, sort of insights back in AFL football plus also what we've discussed today? Because um, the book wasn't a lot about, I guess, exactly how I rebounded or came back. Um, and some of the stuff I've discussed today wasn't in the book, that's for sure. But um, it's hard to know. I mean, these days people are lazy too. They, they, I know my book was successful for one reason. That was, it was you could read it in one night. So mm. it didn't take a week to read. Yeah. Must have had a lot of pictures in there. Um, <laughs> but also, I think people, each, I made sure each chapter was like Facebook, I suppose. If you do a, it's, you know, this is a podcast, but if you do a thousand word status, you're going to lose 95% of people before you even start. Yeah. If you keep it to 30 words, you, you'll get their attention. To the point. Uh, yeah, to the point. And then they'll comment or they'll like or whatever. So the book has to be the same if you're going to do one or an audio book, et cetera. Now, Ricky, I can't thank you enough, mate, for taking the time to uh, to sit down and become the inaugural first person uh, to sit down with myself on life uh, life talk with with Jake. So, what would be the final message that Ricky Nixon would like to get out uh, in regards to people listening? To that well, I think uh, just you know, look, we all go through periods where we party too much or we do things that perhaps our family don't know about or whatever else. You're not a bad person. You made a mistake. Own it. And then remember, you got talent. Everyone's got talent. Start thinking about some new mountains to climb. 
And I know even that's what I'm encouraging my two sons. They're very different to me, so I can't expect them to. Some some dads want them always to be like their dad. You can't. Ex- can't my dad's a total opposite. He's, ne- he's very quiet. He's reserved. He's never played sport in his life. So everyone's different, and just remember that and consider that when you when you. My PA made one of the best comments of my, of my life once. She came and said, why do you always leave your bloody coffee cup on the boardroom table? And I said, why do you always comment on the 1% of things you hate about me and not the 99% you like? She goes, that's a good point, Ricky. It's a very good point. Look, I, I think everyone listening out there today, Rick, has certainly learned um, a different side to Ricky Nixon, perhaps of what they probably perceive through media and, and social media. And like I said earlier, I really appreciate the time sitting down and having Thanks, a chat. Sir. I had luxury and opportunity to sit down and, and meet you back in my, or the later part of my yep. football career, yep. and I certainly got to know you as a professional in what you did during your management days, and obviously having seen your journey over the last few years, it certainly inspired me, um, and to reiterate the point, you know, we all do, do we do make mistakes, yep. and I think that if you are passionate enough and want to work hard and, and fight to to get the respect back from people that you love, not necessarily the public, but the people in your life, I think at the end of the day, that's what is most important. And from speaking to you today, mate, I can see that you're certainly well on the path of doing that. Uh, The relationships that you have with your family, your partner, and your kids is probably what the most important thing to you in your your life is. So I thank you again, mate, for sitting down, taking the time, and I thank you all for tuning in and uh, listening. So please tell your friends and your family uh, to jump on and download the podcast. Follow us on Facebook and and Twitter and on Instagram and hopefully you guys can tune in next time where our next episode we'll be sitting down with um, superstar tennis, Australian tennis uh, player Sam Groff and we'll get the opportunity to sit down and uh, learn more about his life and hopefully learn a little bit about his career and what's next for for Sam Groff. But Ricky, thanks again, mate. Thanks, Jake. Much appreciated, mate. So there you have it. Yet another episode of Life Talk with Jake completed. We would like to take this time to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so to ensure you don't miss the next episode. If listening to today's episode has brought up some emotions for you and you'd like to speak to someone urgently, please contact our close friends at Lifeline on 13114. Opening up about your emotions and expressing the way you are feeling to someone is always the right option. You are never alone and there are always people who can help. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram and share with all your family and friends. If you would like to contact Jake, please visit our website via www.lifetalkwithjake.com.au.